Colossians chapter 1. I want to read the um, verses leading up to our text this morning uh, for the sake of just reestablishing the context. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Colossians. So if you look in verse 13 with me, Colossians 1.13, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, sins, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Father, I want to ask you this morning to open our hearts, to receive your word, give understanding and insight uh, into the very meaning of this passage. Lord, teach us to follow you with eyes of faith, to walk not by sight, but by faith, with our heart and mind and soul fixed entirely upon you for everything that we might be obedient sons and daughters of the living God. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a few weeks, so let me just uh, remind you of the context of where we are. Paul has uh, prayed for the Colossian church, and then he is kind of launching into the heart of his message by reminding them kind of where they used to be before they heard the gospel and how Christ has changed their lives. He's laying this foundation because he's going to, uh, in chapter 2 and even later on here, begin to get down to the kind of the nitty-gritty issues that are particularly facing them with false teaching, false doctrine. And so in verse 13, he had reminded them that they once lived in a domain of darkness. And I, I just want to remind you of that imagery. Because the scripture says that the minds of unbelievers are blinded, that Satan has blinded their minds, that the God of this world has blinded them from truth, and that people without the illuminating uh, light of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ are people that live in a domain of darkness. It, it's not only dark morally. It's not only dark spiritually, but it is dark with respect to, to understanding and comprehension. It is true to say that people without Christ have no awareness of the meaning of life. They really don't know why they're here, They don't know what the problem is, and they really don't know how it's all going to end and where they're headed. All of that uh, they are blind to because of this domain of darkness. Then Paul breaks into that with that great Christology passage, that great section of verses dealing with who is Jesus Christ. And we kind of left with that the last time of the uh, exalted deity and glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. But then... As we come back to this in verse 21, he says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. Now, just a word uh, on your study guide so you know what's going on here. Uh, I have translated the verses for you under the Roman numerals. 
This is kind of a challenging passage, and it's not that I think I can do a better job than all the teams of scholars. I don't mean to imply that, but as I studied and got into it, rather than going into a lot of detail about why this or why that, I thought I would just give you my own translation from the Greek in each of the uh, main points. And so when you see the italicized verse and you're saying, what version is that? Well, that's the Paul Martin version. And um, it's kind of based on, on some of my uh, delving into the particulars of the passage. Paul basically, in these three verses, reminds the Colossian of their former condition. He talks about their reconciliation, uh, what they were saved from and what they're saved to, where they're headed. And then he gives kind of uh, uh, an assurance couched as a warning that this is contingent upon a perseverance in the truth of the gospel. And so we want to look at these verses this morning and see specifically what he's saying to us. Now, he says, Our former condition, and you that were one time alienated and hostile in mind, evil in deeds. You were alienated. That's the condition that every one of us was in before we came to know Jesus Christ. We were alienated from God. I don't know why, but every once in a while these strange things uh, pop into my mind, these strange images, not, not nearly as often as they pop into Carrie's mind, for example. But, <laughs> but, but I have these strange uh, thoughts, and for some reason I was uh, meditating on this verse and I got this science fiction uh, image that came into my mind of outer space travel and encountering aliens. And uh, the definition of an alien is, is something or some being that is totally different from us. Uh, you know, they, they look different, they, they talk different, if they talk at all, they live in a different world, they, they have a whole different climate and environment that governs their life. They're alien. And, you know, whenever we talk about aliens invading the earth, it's uh, this whole image of things that are totally wholly unlike who we are, uh, just totally different. And the word alienated means <laughs> to be like an alien to someone. It, it literally means to be separated, in, like in a different world. There's, a, there's an emotional uh, content to the word as well, because there's some hostility going on. But it, but it means that you are so different that you have nothing in common anymore. You have really been breached. There's a, there's a barrier, there's a wall that exists, in this case, between unbelievers and God. And the wall is, is a moral barrier. They can't cross over the gulf. They can't um, get past the wall. They can't get through the wall. And, and not only is there hostility on the side of human beings, but there's wrath and judgment on the side of God. It's, it is a bad situation. And there's no connection. They don't talk the same. They don't think the same. Human beings and God are not on the same page. There's, there's no commonality. We were made in His image, but that image has been desperately marred. And we are in a lost condition that can only be described as being alienated. And so, and so Paul says, this is where you were. It's also interesting that this is in the passive voice because alienation is something that happened to human beings as a result of something else. And that something else was sin in the garden at the point of the fall where Adam and Eve deliberately turned away from following God and turned aside to go what they thought was their own way, but which in fact was the way of Satan himself. And as a result of the fall, they were alienated. Something came upon them that separated them from God. And God is the only one who's ever been able to reach through that barrier. And so Paul reminds them of that. He says, you were alienated from God hostile in mind. Now, that phrase is going to become key as we unlock 
the, the specific arguments of this book of Colossians, this letter to the Colossians, because the problem that the Colossians were facing was false teaching that was seeking to pull them away from the purity of following Jesus Christ. It was threatening to undermine the truth of the gospel and distract them from the faith. And so Paul is underscoring that here, reminding them that the condition of alienation includes a mind which is hostile toward God. There's a hostility of mind. That's something that we often fail to account for when we're talking about the fallenness of human nature. I mean, we can look at human beings and, and, and we can, even, even many lost people, uh, people without Christ, can acknowledge the fact that uh, the, there, there may be a moral problem. You know, they're going to define morality differently, but they, they may agree that some people just do wicked things, or they, they, they behave badly. Um, they, you know, they may agree that they have made mistakes. We kind of want to soften the sin word a little bit, but, you know, I haven't done everything right. And if you try to pin down a person and say, you know, have you ever told a lie? There aren't... Uh, well, I'm going to go ahead and say there's no one I know that can pass that test, you know, and say I've never in my whole life misstated the truth in any way uh, deliberately or by omission. It's interesting how many lies get told without ever saying a word because you let someone believe a falsehood and you don't bother to correct them. And so... it becomes obvious that there's that kind of an issue. And even unbelievers can go along with it to a point. They come a little short of saying, I'm a personal sinner who has offended a holy God. That's kind of a way out there. But the one area that many people just refuse to acknowledge is badly damaged, is broken, is the mind. Humanistic rationalism is based upon the confidence that if we bring the best minds to the table to address a problem, we will be able to find an answer. That goes for the small problems as well as the human problem. How are we going to solve the problem of this world? Um, I I just happened to see an article on Yahoo the other day that talked about the fact that we are rapidly uh, outstripping our resources and that within probably the next 25 years, uh, the world, the planet, is going to be in serious trouble relative to the availability and the allocation of resources to sustain life. They're talking about it. I mean, they're not put, that's not too far away. I may live to see that if they don't kill me first. You know, because I may be at that point sucking air and and eating food that some younger person needs. And so they may have devised a plan uh, for dealing with that. I don't know, but that's that's already being hypothesized. I also noticed another thing on Yahoo that atheism is on the rise. Um, It's not as widespread as you might think. It's around 3% uh, of truly confirmed atheists in our country, but it apparently is on the rise. That's not surprising because as time goes along and we distance ourselves from our Judeo-Christian heritage with each successive generation, more and more unbelievers who have no foundation in biblical truth begin to populate the, the culture and pretty soon just the natural weakening occurs. But things are changing. And the confidence is from a humanistic standpoint, or from humanism is, we can solve our problems by simply bringing our minds to bear and and addressing the issues. And if we put enough people together, we can figure out how to fix all the issues that are affecting mankind. And what we do not tend to recognize is that a person without Jesus Christ can never, in the final analysis, think 
correctly. Because there are always going to be things that they cannot see. No matter how it stares them in the face, no matter how blatantly they're confronted with truth, the fact is they will not be able to see it and put the right interpretation upon it because of the fallen mind. And I take you back to the garden and remind you again, because I've done this more than once, and I know that I'm not suffering from dementia, I'm just trying to underscore a very important truth in our lives. When you go back to the garden, you stand in front of the tree of knowledge of good and evil with Adam and Eve, and the serpent is there pointing out the tree, and you analyze the situation. The Scripture tells us that they looked at the fruit, and here were the conclusions they drew. It was good for food, the lust of the flesh. It was pleasant to behold, the lust of the eyes, And it was desirable to make one wise. And wisdom was coveted in that moment. A wisdom that did not include God. Because as you recall, Satan offered this ploy. God knows the day you eat of this, Your eyes will be opened. You will see for yourselves. You will be able to discern good from evil, i.e., you will not need God. And you can write your own ticket. And God is afraid of that. God doesn't want you to eat this fruit because He knows when you do, you'll be able to function without Him. And he wants to keep you stupid and, and, and ignorant and dependent. And if, if your brain is opened up, you won't need him anymore. You can write your own path. And that was very attractive. And that was a part, a strong part of the appeal that induced Adam and Eve to turn away from God so that they could become like God. And that sin has infected every human being since. What Paul is telling us is, is that the unredeemed mind is hostile toward God. In fact, the word here is very strong. It means hating, hating. It's it's a hateful mind. It's filled with animosity and anger. Now, let me ask you to just think with me for a moment before the occasion of the fall. Were Adam and Eve mindless, stupid people? I don't think so. In fact, they were the primary original gene pool. I would venture to say that if the truth were known, it's not recorded in Scripture, but if we were to venture a guess, and based on the prowess of those mighty people of those days, I would say that Adam and Eve were the two most intelligent, brilliant people who ever inhabited this planet. You know, that they weren't these cave people running around, they were people who, they were the most intelligent people on the planet, that have ever populated the planet. They were given management of the whole world. They were specifically put in terms of management of the garden. All the animals were brought along by Adam and he assigned names to them based on his discernment of their characteristics. God walked with them in the cool of the day. What did those conversations go like? They were talking with the living God. They were holding conversations. And one of the things that I might presume is that They were discussing with God the administration of the world and listening to His counsel and His advice in perfect harmony as they were in cooperation with His purposes. Why do I think that's true? I don't have any Scripture in Genesis to point to it, but I do have Scripture in John's Gospel to point to it. That the last Adam, the second man, Jesus Christ, lived His life on this earth as the first Adam was supposed to live it. 
And when I read his own testimony, here's what he says. I never do anything on my own initiative. I only do what the Father tells me to do. I never speak a word out of my own thoughts. I only say those things the Father gives me to say. What is he telling us? He's saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit in me, I'm always obedient to my Father. I only do the things that He tells me to do and say the things that He tells me to say. Just stop for a moment. Don't you wish that were true of all of us? Really? I mean, how much simpler our lives would be if the only thing we ever did was what the Father told us to do and say. I mean, we would not, we would not get in nearly the, the, the messes that we get into. I mean, Jesus got into some messes because other people were in rebellion, not because He had created those messes. Jesus is saying that is the eternal Son of God come in human flesh, living as a, a spirit-filled man. He lived in total dependence on the Father. And you've heard me say this like a thousand times. Well, that may be an exaggeration, but you've heard me say it a lot. And it's important that we get it. And you see what Satan was doing was saying, you don't have to live in this dependent relationship on God. You can write your own ticket. You can be your own boss. What they didn't realize was the moment they did that, they cut off any hope of ever knowing the truth. And they alienated themselves from the one person in the universe that really understood them and knew what life was all about. And now they're on their own and they're blind and they can't see. And the arrogance of humanistic rationalism is, I don't need any God. I have a mind and I can figure things out for myself. And that very attitude is hatred toward the living God. Because he says you can't. He says when you make that statement, you're a fool. When you make that claim, you show how ignorant and blind you really are. And the scripture is filled with biblical truth, God's truth to the contrary. For example, he says, do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge God. In all your ways acknowledge God. He will direct your path. So I don't want direction. Ah, there's rebellion. I don't want to acknowledge God. I, I like to make a few choices of my own. There's rebellion. You see the problem? I, I don't care what it is. It's, it's hateful toward God. The Scripture says, there's a way that seems logically reasonable to a man. And it ends in death. It always ends in death. Because we can't figure it out. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. I, I'm, not, I'm not a man that I think like you do. My ways, my thoughts are as high above yours as the heavens are above the earth. And the only way you can get mine is if you come humbly to me and ask. How do we get smart according to the Scripture? We begin by fearing God. We begin by bending our knee and confessing that He is Lord, He is God, and I am not. The, the proverb says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's the starting point. If you don't start there, you're never going to be wise. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so that leads Paul to write to the Romans in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and he says, I, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It is the transformation of our mind through redemption and reconciliation as the Word of God is built into our heart by the Holy Spirit who now lives within and illumines and enlightens us to the, to the truth of God 
that our mind is gradually renewed, and it is that renewing that leads us in the path of God and in successful ways. This book of the law, God said to Joshua, shall not depart out of your mouth. This book of the law, this one, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Success defined by God, which is lasting success. And the problem is, is that Paul goes on to say, Not only were they hostile in mind, but because they were alienated from God, had a sin nature, and were hostile in mind, the the kinds of behavior that emanated from their life was evil. They were full of evil deeds. This was their condition before Christ. And friends, that is our condition before Christ. We are full of evil deeds. Even the ones we think are great ideas turn out to be bad and sour in some ways if for no other reason that they were motivated by our own selfishness. You know, I just just want to interject this here. Who loves God the most? I could go around this room, And I could probably discern, if you were being willing enough and honest enough to answer the question truthfully, I could go around this room and probably discern who loves God the most. Do you know who that would be? It would be the person who has behaved the most wickedly. And I say that because Jesus said, the one who is forgiven much loves much. Now, the fact is, you don't have to act out on all of that wickedness. You just have to catch a glimpse of the abyss in your own life. And if God brings you to the place where the, the, the curtains are drawn back and you see the darkness of your own soul, the abyss of your own life, you will be forever changed. And the transformation will be that you will see the the pricelessness of what Jesus did on the cross. And you will fall in love with Him at a greater level than you've ever been before. And friends, we are badly broken people. And our lives are dark. And we have a a difficult time coming to grips with our own depravity. But it is deep. It is deep. In fact, the Scripture says the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And so I say that even outside of Jesus Christ, when you think you're doing well you have no idea the polluted stream from which those deeds flow. There's usually an angle, somewhere, somehow. And this is the nature of unredeemed people. They are really, really lost. And because their mind is darkened, the evil deeds continue to flow. Paul says, realize from what you have been saved. Take stock of that. Recognize it. And it's especially important that we understand the deceitfulness of the mind because if we are open to all kinds of religious ideas and suggestions, we are the most spiritually immature and most likely to be deceived by false doctrine. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 22... That's how we used to be. But now, He has reconciled us in His body of the flesh, or His fleshly body, through death, to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach in His presence. Paul is actually beginning to 
to hammer down the arguments of the false teachers. And one of those arguments was uh, kind of a dualism. And it's all throughout our culture today, this dualistic thinking. And part of the dualism said, matter is evil, spirit is good. And it took many different manifestations. Um, It's also kind of equivalent to the idea of the yin and the yang, that that the universe is in tension between black and white, between good and evil, between dark and light, that there's this equal tension going on. There's no equal tension. God God is in charge of it all. I mean, he's on top of the whole thing, but, but this kind of, uh, of dualism, but this light and dark, this uh, flesh and, and matter thing and spirit thing, the early teaching of Gnosticism before it actually became called that was that matter was evil, spirit was good. Jesus, if he was good and God, could not have had a body because he would have been incorporated in an evil fleshly body and that couldn't happen so one of the theories was that jesus only appeared to be in a body it wasn't real and so paul actually uses a redundant phrase to go out of his way here to say in his body the soma of flesh sarks and the word flesh is really in a sense kind of crude Because it's the same word that would be used for flesh in the meat market. He wants them to get the idea that Jesus Christ was in a fleshly body just like yours and mine. And the fleshly nature was very material, very solid. And that it was in that body that he died an atoning death on the cross of Calvary and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and sprinkled them not only there, but also in the heavenly uh, altar before God at the mercy seat in heaven, that we might be covered with the blood of a lamb without spot or blemish, so that we could be reconciled to God. He's the one, we decided to leave this up for another week, by the way, but he's the one that built the bridge between us and God. He's the one that, that breached the wall. He's the one that opened the way for the wrath of God to be satisfied in His judgment and for our hostility to be torn down so that by His Spirit we could come back together. And He says He has reconciled you through His fleshly body through death so that He can present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, there's some discussion in the text about who the Him is. You notice that in verse 22? Uh, the Him, to present you to Him, is the, is the Him God, the Father, or is the Him Jesus Christ? But as you look at the wording that's used, the strong impression is that this is Jesus Christ preparing a bride for Himself. The same kind of wording is used in Ephesians chapter 1, and also in chapter 5 when it talks about the bride of Christ being, being brought to Him without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That Jesus Christ is preparing a bride and that one day He's going to come back for us and He's going to receive us into His presence. We're going to see Him as He is. And He's our heavenly bridegroom coming for us. And we're going to be dressed in robes of righteousness. And the Scripture says we are going to be holy, set apart unto God. We are going to be blameless. There's not going to be anything in us that is out of order, and we're going to be above reproach. There's nothing the accuser of the brothers, that old serpent the devil, is going to be able to say that will stick. Because every single objection has been met in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we stand in that condition today. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you thankful to know that right now when you approach the throne of God... While he's not naive or ignorant of the struggles that we have, when you approach the throne of God, in Jesus Christ, you are holy and blameless and unassailable beyond reproach from the enemy himself because we have been covered and cleansed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so... 
Paul reminds the Colossians. He's about to enter into the details of, of the false teaching and how they're endangered by it and, and the particular problems with it. But he says, I want you to remember where you were. And I want you to remember where you're going. And friends, we need to keep that in mind. We need to stop every once in a while and take inventory. We need to look back and see where God has saved us from. We need to see our condition before Christ. And you should do that. The Bible encourages us to do that. It says examine yourselves. Test yourselves. See, see if, if you are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in you unless you're still in your sins. And all of 1 John, John wrote his first letter as a test. He said, I have written these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. So check it out. Do you pass the test? Every once in a while we should take that evaluation. And we should, we should ask the question with the aid of the Holy Spirit, have we been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ? Is there evidence of change in our life by His Holy Spirit? Now, here's the thing about that. You can't take that test for me, and I can't take it for you. Jesus told a parable about a fellow that uh, had his field sown with wheat. And then during the night, uh, someone came in, some wicked enemy, and sowed tares in the field. And then, as they began to sprout up, the servants came to the master and said, Oh, no, our wheat field is infiltrated with weeds and tares. Should we, should we go and pluck up the tares? And Jesus said, no. And the master said, no, you better not do that because you'll pull up the root of the wheat. Let them grow together. At the end of the age, the angels will sort them out. Now, the message for us is this. In the church, there are both wheat and tares. In the church, there are people who have been genuinely, truly born again by the Spirit of God. And they are new people. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And in the church, there are people who have not been born again, although they have kind of warmed up to religion. They don't know that we're not talking about religion here. But they kind of like how they feel, and they, they kind of, uh, you know, give head and lip service to the gospel. And, you know, they've, they, they've, they've kind of made nice-nice with Christianity. But they have not dealt with the heart issue of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's true here this morning. I mean, I sincerely hope that every single person in this room is truly born again by the Spirit of God. But the reality always exists, the possibility always exists, that there are some here this morning who, while you're warm-hearted and tender toward the faith, you have not had that genuine encounter with Jesus Christ where you have bent the knee, confessed your sin, invited Him to be Lord and Savior, and turned your life over to Him without reservation. And as a consequence, there's not a new birth going on there. Now, I, I've set that question up because of what Paul says in this last verse. He says, if indeed, he says, this is what's going to happen. You used to be like this, you're going to be like this. If indeed you are continuing in the faith with foundation well laid, steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. The one preached in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, am a servant. Let me just deal with the last part before I deal with the first. Paul says the gospel preached under uh, in all creation under heaven. That is a figure of speech that we call hyperbole. That means a big exaggeration to, to focus on the point. 
Paul's saying the gospel, this is the one that has gone out from Jerusalem, it's gone through uh, Asia, it's gone to Spain, it's gone to India, it's in North Africa. This is the gospel that's spreading everywhere uh, faster than, than we can keep track of. It's going all over the place. He didn't intend for us to think that it had been preached to every creature. That's kind of a mistranslation. Or to every single creation in every part of the planet under the whole heavens everywhere on, on the face of the earth. He's making a point. This is not a gospel that's super secret. This isn't one hidden in a closet. This is the gospel that has been preached everywhere. It's all over the kingdom, the Roman Empire. It's all over North Africa. This gospel has gone everywhere. And this is the message that I have preached and become a servant. John uses that same kind of thing at the end of his gospel when he says, I suppose if I were to tell you every story of the things that Jesus did, the whole world could not contain the number of books in that story. Well, the whole world probably could contain the number of books. But you know what he's saying? There's a lot of stuff I didn't put in the gospel. I just put the things there that Basically, the Holy Spirit guided me were important. But having said that, Paul places that at the end of the as an affirmation of the gospel of this statement, if indeed you are continuing in the faith with foundation well laid, steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel. I took the time to quote for you an excerpt from the Exegetical Guide to the Greek New Testament uh, Colossians and Philippians by Harris. Since if, the word if, is followed by the present indicative and Paul is confident about the Colossian Christian's sp present spiritual condition as we can see in chapter 2, verse 5b, this condition is neither a hypothesis nor simply a hope, but a condition Paul is confident or assumes will be fulfilled. If you continue, and I'm confident that you will. It's, it's another manner of speaking that sets up a, a situation that says, you used to be this, you're going to be this, if you continue on the path you're on, and I'm confident that you're going to do this. It's that kind of a, of a conditional. It could almost be sense, but having said that, It does bring to bear the reality that if transformation has occurred, certain things should be in place. And if we find they're not there, we need to examine our own roots and put them to the test. The imagery that Paul uses is of building a building. And I have dug many foundations. Not figuratively, not spiritually, but literally. I used to be in the building trades. And both in Florida and in North Georgia and in Tennessee, I built many foundations. Uh, from my early grunt labor days of tying steel in the sand down in Florida in the ditches to pour the concrete, uh, to those days when I was with the plans and laid out the foundations and, uh, and, and guided the leveling and the, and the squaring of the building and planted those foundations. And the point of a foundation is to provide a secure footing and bedrock so that you can build a structure that isn't going to sink, crack, shift, or move. You want a foundation, you know, and we tied steel and poured concrete and we put it in what we called virgin earth. It means earth that hadn't been dug up before. It's not a great idea ever to build on fill, although it's done a lot. And I guess there's ways around it, but even then sometimes they drill pilings down to the solid uh, material beneath. That foundation is, cru is crucial. And Paul says you need the foundation of the gospel as the basis of your faith. And then you need a stable building that's put upon it. Even if you lay an excellent foundation, 
if you bring in a sloppy carpenter or a sloppy mason and they just start laying wood and brick around, it's not going to be a stable structure. You have to come up from that foundation. And, and even in Florida, by then they had instituted some of these laws about the, with the hurricanes and stuff about tying the roof trusses down. We would go from the foundation, build up the block wall. We would pour certain webs in the wall full of concrete. We would pour U-block around the top full of concrete with steel in them. And from that steel, there was a little thing sticking up that wrapped around the truss and held it down. So the idea was that if you're going to take the roof off this building, you've got to pull the whole foundation up with it. It was, it was contiguous all the way to the bottom. Paul says you need a strong foundation, you need a stable building, and then you need to remain immovable. Don't budge on the truth of the gospel. That is the criteria that ensures our stability all the way to the end. Now, it is my conviction that God gives that perseverance to His saints and that others may fall by the wayside. But having said that, we need to recognize that every once in a while we need to take stock of the foundation and we need to guard the way we think. Not long ago, I was talking with someone and I was questioning them about their, their doctrine and their theology. And uh, it, it, was, it was in an official capacity, and I was a little concerned about the answers I was getting. So I kind of pursued it a little bit. And as we dug more deeply into the particulars, the kind of things that I started hearing was, well, I believe this, but... There's other good people that love the Lord that don't believe this. Different questions. Well, how do you feel about that? Well, I, you know, I think this could be true, but I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. I want to keep an open mind. And I want to tell you this morning, Paul is strongly counseling to the contrary. There are some things in the gospel message that in our faith in Jesus Christ need to be settled. And the book is forever closed on that question. If you want me to doubt the inerrancy and infallibility of this book, I am not open to the discussion. Not open to it. Does not mean I haven't studied it. Doesn't mean I haven't looked at it. I'm in the process of writing another paper in defense of inerrancy. But if you want me to seriously entertain the possibility that this book has flaws in it, that's off my table. I'm not open to that discussion. If you want me to seriously question the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, it's not open for discussion. Take away the virgin birth, the gospel is nothing. It's destroyed. Take away the deity of Jesus Christ in human flesh, the gospel is destroyed. Take away the blood atonement for our sin, the gospel is destroyed. Take away His bodily resurrection out of the grave and his bodily ascension into the heavenlies and there is no gospel message. Take away the fact that we are really sinners accountable to a holy God and if we do not accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and turn from our sin and receive the promise of eternal life through him, we will spend eternity in a literal hell that burns forever and ever where the conscience will never, ever be satisfied or stop accusing us. That's what Jesus meant when he said, their worm does not die. These truths are not open for discussion. They're not available for, for debate. My mind is closed. 
I rest on Jesus Christ. This is the truth. Paul says, that's the foundation that has been laid. You need to be immovable. You need to be unshakable. You cannot shift a quarter of an inch. You must remain firm. You can never give on these issues. Because when you do, the gospel message unravels. And we, as Paul said in Corinthians in another one of those if then but since then statements, if Christ is not raised, then we are still dead in our sins. There is no resurrection. And if we have only in this life to hope in Jesus Christ, we are of all men most miserable. The hedonist, get it right. If there is no resurrection and Jesus has not come out of the tomb and there is no atonement for sin, you had better just go out there and live it up and do what you want and have fun. It makes sense. Because there's no reason to try to live a godly life if there is no God and no hope. That's a stupid way to live your life. It only makes sense. It only makes sense. And I disagree with with C.S. Lewis on this part, who said the Christian life makes the most sense even if there is no God. No, it doesn't. The Apostle Paul didn't agree with him. He said it makes no sense at all. If Christ is not raised, then there's no gospel. But the fact is, our eyes are open. We understand life. We understand the meaning of life. We have the hope in Jesus Christ. Paul says, that's where you need to remain immovable, unshakable, Firm in the foundation and never depart from this truth. Friends, take heed to this warning. Make sure that you're anchored fast. Make sure that, that you are like those hurricane straps, that, that the top of your structure all the way to the bottom is firmly grounded in the anchor that is in Jesus Christ and in the truth of the gospel. And from there, we can go on to deal with these other issues and see uh, where they are flawed in their philosophy. Father, I want to pray this morning that you will open our eyes to truth. And I also want to pray for all of us today. It's one of those moments when we can do inventory. And I want to pray by the Holy Spirit that you would open our eyes to ourselves. I can't judge anyone else. They can't judge me. But, oh, Holy Spirit of God, you can. You are the one who within us cries out, Abba, Father, and testifies that we are sons and daughters of God. I pray that you would, by your grace, enable us to examine our heart and show us if we are really in the faith and grant us the grace to be bedrock founded, stable and secure, immovable until the day of Jesus Christ. I ask it in His precious name. Amen.